Listen now for the word of God in 1 Kings chapter 19. Ahab told, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all Baal's prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah with this message. May the gods do whatever they want to me, if by this time tomorrow I haven't made your life like the life of one of them. Elijah was terrified. He got up and ran for his life. He arrived at Beersheba in Judah and left his assistant there. He himself went further on into the desert a day's journey, and he finally sat down under a solitary broom bush. He longed for his own death. It's, it's more, more than, than enough, Lord. Lord. Take my life, because I'm no better than my ancestors. And so he lay down and slept under the solitary broom bush. Then, suddenly, a messenger tapped him and said to him, Get up, eat something. Elijah opened his eyes and saw flatbread baked on glowing coals and a jar of water right by his head. He ate and he drank, and then he went back to sleep. The Lord's messenger returned a second time and then tapped him. Get up, eat something because you have a difficult road ahead of you. Elijah got up, he ate and drank and went refreshed by that food for 40 days and nights until he arrived at Horeb, God's mountain. There he went into a cave to spend the night. Then the, the Lord's word came to him. Why are you here, Elijah? I have been very passionate for the Lord God of heavenly forces because the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They have torn down your altars and they have murdered your prophets by the sword. I am the only one left and now they want to take my life too. Go out and stand at the mountain before the Lord. The Lord is passing by. A very strong wind tore through the mountains and broke apart the stones before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But God wasn't in the earthquake. And then after the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord wasn't in the fire. And then after the fire, there was a sound thin at the cave's entrance. And a voice came to him and said, Why are you here, Elijah? I have been very passionate for the Lord God of heavenly forces because the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They have torn down your altars and they have murdered your prophets with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they want to take my life too. Go back through the desert to Damascus and anoint Hazel as king of Aram. This is the word of God for all the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, 
it was hard to not pay attention to the reading this morning because I made you read part of it. But if you don't know the story of Elijah, which is probably most people, I'll give you a little recap to get back up to speed. So Elijah was a prophet and a miracle worker living in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Ahab around 9th century BCE. And our backdrop is filled with deserts of dust, filled with people suffering from famine and drought. And our hero, Elijah, however, he though, he's been living in the desert, but he's been living large. God has set him up with a river of drinking water and ravens who deliver him food daily with all the convenience of Grubhub. And he's hanging out there, but then his oasis dries up and the ravens fly away. So God tells Elijah to go to the home of a widow and she will feed him. In a story that may sound familiar to the feeding of the 5,000, Elijah is able with only a small amount of flour and oil to feed himself and the widow and her son for 40 days until the rain returns. But then things go south again when the, sons die, when the widow's son dies. And in a story reminiscent of the raising of Jairus' daughter, Elijah miraculously is able to bring this boy back to life from the dead. And Elijah continues this Christ-like behavior as he challenges the powers that be. King Ahab has become a worshiper of Baal under the influence of his wife, Jezebel. So Elijah challenges Ahab to a competition. Let's go to Mount Carmel. I will make a sacrifice to Yahweh and you will make a sacrifice to Baal. And the altar that is consumed by fire will be the one true God. So the two go up Mount Carmel and they make their sacrifices. The prophets of Baal pray to Baal for hours and hours, but nothing happens. Then in a dramatic flourish, Elijah boldly drenches his offering in water, demonstrating his supreme trust and faith in Yahweh. And as expected, Yahweh sends down a blazing fire, just completely engulfing Elijah's altar. And finally, when the fire subsides, the rain begins to gently fall again on the parched earth. And then after Elijah clearly wins the whose God is more fiery competition, he takes this war against the idol Baal one step further, and he murders the prophets of Baal. Now, the Israelites, seeing that Yahweh is clearly the winner here, they turn away from King Ahab and back to Baal, back towards Yahweh and Elijah. But as you can imagine, this makes King Ahab and his wife uh, Jezebel very, very angry. So Jezebel, in our reading, sends Elijah a death threat, and he runs for his life into the desert. And this is where our reading picks up, out there in the wilderness. Here is where Elijah hits rock bottom. He's done everything that Yahweh has asked of him. So why is he the one who's alone and hungry and thirsty and running for his life? Elijah sits down under a tree and cries out to God, Enough, God! Just kill me! 
and he lays down and goes to sleep. Suddenly, Elijah feels a touch on his shoulder, and he opens his eyes, and there's an angel before him. And the angel says, get up, eat something. And there's a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of fresh water. And so Elijah eats his fill, and then he falls back asleep. Then the angel comes to Elijah a second time and warns him, Elijah, if you don't eat, this trip is going to be too much for you. So after nap time, Elijah has snack time again, and he's fortified for 40 days of travel. I love this part of the story. God comforts Elijah in his grief by letting him cry it out under the tree, get some good sleep, and some snacks. There's definitely a whole sermon there about compassion in action and self-care. Because it's true, when life gets to be too much, sleep and food is what will get you back on your way. Now, ultimately, Elijah reaches the mountain, and when he gets there, God calls to Elijah saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he answers what you all said uh, in our reading, I've been your best devotee and prophet, but those Israelites back there, though, they've been awful. They've broken your covenant, your altars, and even killed prophets like me. I'm the only good one left. And yet somehow, I'm the one running for my life. And God doesn't reply. He doesn't reply saying, that sounds rough, Elijah, or you wait here while I go take care of those naughty Israelites. No, God responds to Elijah's complaint with instructions. Go stand on the mountain, and you will see me pass by. So, as obedient as ever, Elijah goes up to the mountain. And first, as we heard, there's this huge wind so strong that it blows the boulders down the mountain, breaking them apart. But God isn't in the wind. Then the ground beneath Elijah's feet begins to shake, and there's this terrifying earthquake splitting the mountains in two. But God isn't in the earthquake. And then there's a blazing fire all around them, consuming everything in its path. But God isn't in the fire. God isn't in any of these forces of violent destruction. And then, after this deafening and dramatic show of pyrotechnics, there comes something else. It is the sound of sheer silence. Other versions translate this as a still, small voice or a thin, gentle whisper. It is a sound so holy that Elijah covers his face in his coat to shield himself from the blinding light of God's face. And he hears God say again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he answers a second time. He says exactly what he said before. And then God's response, it seems less than pastoral, but he gives Elijah another purpose, another set of marching orders. God says, go, go back through the desert to Damascus and anoint Hazel as king. And that's where our lectionary uh, story ends today. It's a bit of a cliffhanger, and if you'd like to know how the story ends, you can pick up a copy of the best-selling page-turner, First Kings. It's here in your pews. I highly recommend it. 
And I don't want to spoil the ending, but it is also exciting and entails chariots of fire. So, uh, but back to today's story. It's a, this gripping epic. But what does it mean for us? There are a million different interpretations from both Jewish and Christian scholars that you can glean from this story. But there's one phrase that has captured people's imagination the most, especially today in this age of technology and hustle. It is the phrase, the sound of silence. God isn't in the ripping wind or the rattling earthquake or the blazing fire. God is in none of the destructive forces that come to Elijah in his darkest days. Now, we have read stories in the last couple of weeks, especially Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit does come as wind or fire, but it's not the kind that destroys. It's a creative, animating fire. And this wind and fire is coming to Elijah at his dark night of the soul. And our God of love is never in the forces that seek to destroy us or kick us when we're down. Instead, at the darkest moment of Elijah's life, God comes to him in silence, in a whisper. Now, we want you to think back on those dark nights of the soul in your life, those tough times when you were feeling like Elijah, feeling exiled and alone, like what was happening just wasn't fair. Maybe you, like Elijah, even wished that you were dead. How did God appear in the desert of your life then? I imagine it wasn't in some kind of dramatic theophany with the clouds parting and the bushes burning or the earth shaking under your feet. I bet that God appeared to you in that time just like God appeared to Elijah, as an angel bringing you a casserole perhaps, as a friend pouring tea, or a spouse handing you a plate and saying, come on, you need to eat something or you need to rest. I bet that God healed you through sleep and time by helping you get some space away from the craziness and busyness of our lives. And I bet if you had a moment of clarity about what on earth you were going to do next, you found it in a moment of silence. When the deafening noise of your life, the cars honking, dogs barking, babies crying, NPR chattering, people calling, the TV blasting, all of it came to a halt, leaving in its wake something very different, peace. These are the moments God takes a seat by our side with a comforting, abiding presence, like the friend who places a hand on your shoulder without a word. So remember that next time when you're at the end of your rope and you're asking, where is God? Where is God in this? Our, our words are always reaching towards God, but they never quite hit the mark. All words are metaphors. Now, many Christians believe that the words of the Bible are somehow so holy that they match the infallibility and perfection of God. 
which is its own form of idolatry. We've put all our faith and trust in human words, in the best Bible translations, but words can never contain the vastness of God. So in a world that just can't stop talking, the value of sacred silence cannot be overstated. So friends, turn off your radio in the car sometimes. Silence all of your phone notifications and bring a casserole to a friend in grief, not your advice. It is in that still spaciousness, that holy pause that you will hear God whispering to you too giving you the wisdom you need to go on. Amen. <laughs>